London, May 1938. The Cornish Riviera Express leaves Paddington Station for Penzance. Cornwall. Later that evening, Car Cox walks from her house up to the cottage. Car walks into the cottage. Alistair Crowley is there, dressed partially in robes, and a group of people. We don't know who they are either, but a group of people visiting from London. And it's clear to Carr that this group of people, they've all taken some kind of drug and they are in the midst of performing a ritual of some kind. The woman she's come to rescue is there. We don't know her name. But we do know the name of her husband. He's known as John Vaughan. Now, Crowley had raised spirits before and this cottage was known to be haunted. It was notorious locally. So it was perfect territory for Crowley at this point. And she's confronted by utter chaos and terror. This John Vaughan is naked in a corner. He's gibbering like a fool. Now the ritual, whatever it was that Alistair Crowley was doing, has created absolute terror and, and panic. But Carr, being the kind of woman she is, she doesn't run from this. No, Carr confronts him. Now, whatever it was, whatever the, he had conjured, whatever spirit there was, whatever he had created in this building, whatever it was that had reduced John Vaughan to madness... That thing there and then kills Carr Cox, and it strikes her dead. Cornwall, present day, after dark. Paranormal investigators arrive at the cottage. Hi, my is Mark. When I came here, first of all, with Haley, I had the words coming through the ghost box, Alistair Crowley, we call him the priest. And um, there's all satanic stuff around here, signs that you're going to see. We've had, um, we've been touched. We had a voice director camera from there saying, baby, come to bed, from a voice upstairs. And you can't even get up there. There's nothing up there. Um, We've had smells of sulfur, rotten flesh, headaches that you've experienced. Um, really bad feelings that you've been watched. You know, I want you to experience it yourself. Alistair Crowley, was that you that came forward on the spirit box? Try to speak into the device in my hand. What did you do here? We're currently stood in a circle surrounding the symbol on the floor. Draw your power and speak into this device. What was that? What was that? Sounds like he was mimicking you. Oh. Oh. oh my god. Can you do it one more time? Oh, I've got goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, you're, you're, effing, you're effing evil. How do you explain that? 
This is episode three of One Dark Night. Our investigation into the mysterious events at the cottage now has a hypothesis, of sorts. It's based on an account by a writer called Paul Newman, entitled The Tregurthan Horror, and also what we've learned from paranormal enthusiasts who've been there. It goes something like this. In 1938, an infamous Satanist, Alistair Crowley, conducted a ritual at the cottage involving a young couple but they were interrupted by Carr Cox, and as a result, she died, or was killed. The police never prosecuted anyone, but now, all those years later, ghost hunters regularly visit the cottage and say they have evidence from their electronic equipment that they can make contact with those who were there. So how much of this can we prove? Who was Alistair Crowley? Was he there in 1938? What actually happened to the couple? And what happened to Carr Cox? We need answers to these questions. So, let's go back to our paranormal investigator, Matthew Williams, who's been filming at the cottage. Tell me a little bit about what took you there. Well, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, the story of Alistair Crowley. I was a member of a, uh, a cult book club mm-hmm. where they would send you out books and... I remember one time they were sort of uh, folk, they were sending out books on Alistair Crowley, and you could buy his kind of works, you know, like his compendium of works. And uh, there was this, I think it was called like the Book of the Law or something. I could I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've read it, and uh, it was a very hard read. Didn't make a lot of sense, to be perfectly honest. So I mean, I, I read about him in his book. Thought this guy's probably off his head. And if he isn't off his head, what's all this about? You know, so, um, yeah, when I had the opportunity to go and explore, I was around a few people who wanted to go there because they were interested in the paranormal side of it. Was there going to be something that was detectable? Could you speak to a spirit or something there? And would it be very strong? You know, the experience be strong. So some people uh, record on tape devices or electronic devices and they ask questions and then they replay the segment that they just recorded and there'll be extra voices there answering the questions on the recording so it's known as an electronic voice phenomena evp and are they so, are they clear voices matthew we're having many references to demon alistair crowley all sorts of voices coming through on the evp there tell down the name of the priest Check us one of the cameras if you want. Check us one of the cameras. Wow, brilliant. Crowley's such an unusual name as well. It's like, that's why I wanted Alistair, maybe Crowley. That's a very unusual name to get out of a spirit box. I wonder whether Alistair Crowley was kind of just a notoriety seeker. I mean, if he did do some of the things he, he he was suggesting, I mean, I think there should be a far bigger investigation into who this chap was. Some of it was quite disturbing because it involved um, like ritual magic required 
things like blood and you know sacrifices and and there were suggestions about sacrificing humans and sacrificing babies and all sorts of things like that if you search online for information about Crowley, you learn that he was born in England in 1875 and is described as an occultist, writer and mountaineer who was a practitioner of magic. The tabloids tend to call him a Satanist and the wickedest man in the world. Crowley called himself the Beast 666. The National Trust website will tell you that he founded his own religious order, designed a set of tarot cards that are still used today, and that he lived life according to his own dictum. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. He was a controversial figure in his own time for his decadent lifestyle, but he became a cult figure after his death, and in the 60s and 70s he influenced some very prominent rock musicians. I've got an LP record here. Oh, Ian. Do you recognise this? Famous. It's a Beatles album, see. Or Sgt Pepper. Sgt Pepper. Yeah. Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And if you look at the back row... Oh, yeah. Mussolini. Second from the left... Looks like Mussolini, doesn't it? You've got to say. But But it is. It's not, is it? It's, It's Alistair Crowley. Why is it? He's on the. I didn't realise that he was on the cover of this. Yeah. Well, I wonder is. why. I wonder who thought that Maybe. was a good idea. I think it was John Lennon that was. Really, John Lennon in. liked him. So there you go. There, and then if you look further down in front of him, the various other famous people, including Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. Like you do a very good Marlon Brando impression, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> I just did it. That was it. That was it. I can't do it again. We need to find out more about Alistair Crowley. And we've had a bit of luck. About 20 years ago, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle, in Cornwall, was given a donation of hundreds of objects relating to ritual magic, the occult, and Alistair Crowley. So that's where we're heading. So, just seen a sign for Tintagel. Name rings a bell. Arthurian legends, I believe. Arthurian legends, yeah. It was um, one of the places that could have been Camelot, King Arthur's Camelot. It doesn't look terribly Camelotish round here, I have to say. Really? I'm just looking at the moment. I'm just seeing hedges and then fields. Um, um, hedges and fields around Camelot? No, I was just expecting kind of plains with horses and mist. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah, yeah. They've probably got a bit of that up here. The, the, the Tintagel Castle itself is really beautiful. It's a long old way to Boss Castle. I was just wondering, have you ever been in a museum dedicated to any kind of things like this, the occult or supernatural or witchcraft? No, I have been to the Museum of Egg Cups, but never to a Museum of Witchcraft. Um, I I think it's going to be utterly brilliant. That's a pretty impressive stretch of coast. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a big promontory, and there's a church just overlooking the sea on a hill. Wow. It looks like... More often, it's lovely. It looks like something from a... A film set that church 
and it looks like a graveyard just perched on the yeah, hilltop. Like a horror film script. Well, it makes you think of Whitby, doesn't it? With the um, yeah, it does a bit. With the abbey there perched high on the. Now we've put the postcode in for this, but my suspicion is that the whole town will be that postcode. It, was there a, some sort of rationing of postcodes in Cornwall? persons, and maybe not so young, come to me for. So, here are a few of my best ones, starting with a divination charm to find your true love. We make our way through the impressive witchcraft section of the museum, and then on to where the Crowley collection is on display. All hail to thee. All hail to thee. Here we go. Picture of the... Man himself, from different periods. There's a, a picture of him there, looking much more like a mystic, <laughs> with the triangle. It's a very Egyptian-influenced look, isn't it? It is. There's a wand he's given to someone. And these tarot cards were <clears throat> based on his instructions. Oh, yeah. The Book of Thoth, written by... By him, Thoth is the Egyptian god of wisdom. Yeah, and that's complete. Oh look, it says on the box, designed. There's a chalice there as well. Yeah, and the famous phrase on the T-shirt, "Do what thou wilt." And look at that. His, his hand. He's got a phallic A in his signature. Yes, the A being made into a phallus. And I assume that's his signature. Yeah. Yeah, looks like it. Oh, and this is the altar. So here is an altar that he designed, I think. What does it say? Yes, double cubic altar created according to designs yeah. published. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a magical order of the late 19th and early 20th century, which practiced various forms of theurgy and spiritual occultism. When Crowley founded the religion of Thelema, he changed the spelling of the word magic, adding a K to the end, because he wanted to differentiate it from stage magic. For a while, we were going to call this podcast magic. But what exactly is magical practice? Well, we have another bit of good luck. It turns out the owner of this museum is an occultist who is a practitioner of magic. I was always taught that the more you know, the less you talk about it. So oh, okay. I'm going to be very discreet. Because it's always, you, you don't, it's not a fixed thing, magical practice. It's always, you're always experimenting and seeing what else works. With a steady gaze through large circular glasses and a richly patterned shirt, Simon Costin is both flamboyant and mysterious at the same time. And it soon becomes obvious to Graham that the occult is so-called for a reason that magic is shrouded in secrecy, that finding out what Crowley was actually conjuring up is easier said than done. I would say I was more an occultist in that sense. Right. As interested, being somebody interested in magical practice. Magical practice being the, not just a ritual of um, worship, but a 
but actually a practical Tapping use of the yeah. of yeah, the yeah. techniques in day to day life. Yes, very much so. Can you give me an example? Not really. No, you can't, you can't, <laughs> no I, I don't. I don't want to. No, no, that's fine. Try, just, it, it depends. I mean, magical practice can be used for such a wide variety of things. The things we think of as someone like me would think of as, as magical practice would be spell casting and things like yes, that. Yes, all of that. You do all of that as well? Not, not particularly, no. I wouldn't say. But that's part of... It's something I can draw on, should, should I? Should I yeah, 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 it was something I was taught, yeah. if you like. So, yeah. And is that about kind of, again, focusing your consciousness in a certain way? Or? Yes. Yes. Yeah, to a degree. It's intent. The yes. intention has to be there for whatever it is, whatever purpose you're um, working through. The thing is with magical practice, it's, it's mm. all incredibly personal. Ah. So the, something that one person may do, another person wouldn't, if you had the same... If somebody came to you with a problem, say, there would be a multitude of, of, of means at your disposal to kind of help. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a few individuals I work with. Yeah. Yeah. And the, but work within what sense? Magically. Okay, combining. Yes. Yeah, together. Yeah. Rather than working to help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it can be to help. Depends what we're up to. Okay. Yeah. And I'm being purposefully obtuse. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep going for a little while. Though. Yeah, don't worry. You won't get anything <laughs> out of it. Right. 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 Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but it is used very much as a, as a, as a way to benefit people well it can be used for all sorts of things not just okay. to benefit people yeah traditionally no. it's been used for every shade between black and white yeah so yeah yeah the crowley thing was very much about um living unencumbered wasn't it really by yes liberation he i mean he he left his may he made such an enormous impact on mm-hmm. popular culture and culture in general that where do you start to kind of pick apart the world would be a far duller place without him having been in the world. Um, and in terms of magical practice, yeah, I mean, he, he enriched magical practice enormously, and but also enriched the way that that sort of counterculture embraced him, particularly in the 60s and 70s, and reinvented him to an extent um, and took on his mantle in some respects, not always in a good way. So, lovely man, didn't give a lot away. I thought no. I mean, I mean, what were you what were you hoping to get from him? Well, you know, a few secrets, tricks of the trade. Yeah, know. but you you wanted well, some. I some... wanted some idea of kind of maybe the rituals that that, that, that they would they would use, or the just the kind of you know how, how churchy is it, you know how. Um, how spooky is it? I suppose that's the truth. I wanted a bit of atmosphere, a bit of atmosphere, you know. And there wasn't much, was there? Really, he was like, "I'm not telling you anything." But I mean, didn't you? I mean, wasn't wasn't it from your point of view a? I mean, were you hoping that he would kind of spill the beans on Crowley, Crowley and how yeah, Crowley exactly? It would be great to know what you know what Crowley did and what he was up to and and how that influenced what they do now and 
how central the whole Crowley thing is to 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 the present day version of it. But isn't that in a way, you know, just classic the classic TV drama obsession with the villain, the perpetrator. I mean, isn't that isn't that what have you perhaps not fallen into that? No, that's trap? a good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. But of all the characters we've seen, all the characters we know so far, I mean, wow, he is the most fascinating, isn't he? Well, I mean, I mean you know, you know self publicist, and you know. I mean, in a way, isn't it true as well that um, often with TV drama, mm. the victim, the victim's dead, so they're not much of the story, so they don't get much of a look in when it comes to the story. Mm. Yeah, they become a cipher, don't they? Uh, so, what you're talking about? Carl Cox in this instance yeah I mean you know isn't uh, uh, you know you've kind of fixated a bit here on yeah, on true. the perpetrator because he's the you know the evil beast the charismatic yep. figure that can conjure up Satan and you know you've totally focused on that I'm not interested in Carl Cox actually she's just a sort of a nice local woman you know who who got herself involved with somebody she shouldn't have done, really. She should have just stayed at home and let them get on with it. So I'm not really interested in her, but I am really interested in the, you know, the the great beast. I mean, look here. Are you, are you hungry at all? I mean, on the menu here, they've got they've got a ploughman's lunch. I'm hungry for information, Ian, yeah, but I'm not hungry for food, if that's what you're asking. You don't want a ploughman's lunch. lunch? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I could go a ploughman's lunch. Yeah, you reckon? Yeah, yeah. The ploughman's lunch is a complete invention, you know. Well, it wasn't eaten by a ploughman, was it? Presumably. Well, that's. I mean, the whole thing is, you turn up at a pub like this, and you have your, you know, basically your agricultural workers' nineteenth-century meal. Okay. And so, so it's some sort of traditional fare. Yeah. But in fact, the, the ploughman's lunch was uh, effectively a marketing exercise in the nineteen fifties <laughs> by the British Cheese Board. Fantastic. Because they saw an opportunity to get cheese. Snacks into pubs uh-huh. and, and sell it through pubs, an extra bit of um, marketing, an extra bit of business for them, and uh, you don't need to cook it. It's, it's, it's basically raw food. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to pay to, for your kitchen to be cooking stuff. You could just serve that up. And, you know, isn't that really what, what you're doing? Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> okay. So. You, so you're saying I shouldn't be interested in the plough man in this instance, but the plough woman? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. What I'm saying is, um, isn't isn't this is? I mean, this is what you're doing, isn't it? What because, fabricating something? Well, no, you're, you've you, you've kind of latched onto a story, mm. which is a really appealing story about mm-hmm. Alistair Crowley in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. With the possibility that it's just a complete fabrication because it's a good story. It's just a way of boosting up its credentials as a place to go. But we don't really know if it's true at all. It's just using a bit of a story which may have a tiny bit of truth in it and then making it into something else to your own ends. Yeah, but there's no smoke without fire, is there? I mean, Matthew said, right, Matthew... And I, I, I'm really interested in what Matthew says. You know, he, he, what he's recorded in the cottage, 
you know, the, the kind of idea that he's trying to find evidence that he's exploring that in his way, you know. And, um, you know, magical practice. There is some, um, and we, you know, we have already spoken to people. We probably will speak to more people who will tell us about magical practice in this landscape. It's there, whether or not, at the moment, we can put all the flesh on the bones, that landscape conjures up magic. Uh, are you going to eat those crisps? I think Graham's lack of interest in Carr Cox is a mistake. So I'm going to do a bit of research of my own. Meanwhile, he is still very much interested in exploring the possibility that you might be able to contact people who've died. So, how are we going to do that? Well, you might remember Letitia, a witch that we met in episode one. We're now on our way to meet her and another witch called Cassandra. They've told Graham that they could make contact with the dead. I can see why he might want to talk to them and maybe get some answers to unresolved questions about what he experienced after his brother's death. I really hope he gets some answers. I can sense his growing frustration and a need that he has to somehow settle things. So, here we are again, heading south to meet them. It's a moment to savour the landscape, the open road, and, as it turns out... It's a moment for us to enjoy a bit of... Come karaoke. On the rainy day. Do you know this song? Well, actually, listeners, I think I do. Don't mind the rain. It's gonna clear up again. When the clouds go rolling by. A rainbow lights the sky.
Do you want me to answer that? It's time to arrange our rendezvous with the witches, which turns out to be at a late Neolithic stone circle. Far too small to sit in, really. Okay. So we thought that might be a better place. Well, I think that would be wonderful if that's all right with you. We're just almost at St. Berry in now, but we'll. How far are you now? Uh, about a mile off St. Berry in. But we'll spin around and see you back at the Merry Maids. Okay, then. We'll see you up there. We'll get going now. Lovely. Really looking forward to it. Right, okay, then. See Bye. you. Bye. I've just seen a sign then for. St. Burian. Close. St. Berrian. St. Berrian, okay. Is it, yeah. is it a famous place? It's, um, yeah, yeah, Straw Dogs. If you, do you remember the film Straw Dogs? I can see a, a tall square tower, looks, looks Norman. Yeah, yeah. Is that the church? Yeah, yeah. And then it's got a garage there, looks almost like something from an Edward Hopper painting. <laughs> it does. <laughs> As you come in, it's just like there's a bit of Americana <laughs> on that side, yeah, and is. then opposite. <laughs> A Norman church on the other side. Yeah, it is, and they're all sitting in there eating their pasties. <laughs> that's, no. Now I think that's probably a bit. That's a bit much, isn't it? It's a bit. It's a bit. It's offensive. It's offensive, actually. Yeah. Can I actually say that you're actually being offensive? I am being offensive, and, but I'm being offensive to my own kind. So we've parked up, and okay, so we're, it's a field and a stone circle with, well, they, I mean, they look a bit like headstones, but they're a bit chunkier, and obviously, looking at them, a lot older. So tell me about it. We're at the Merry Maid Stone Circle near St. Berrien in Cornwall. And um, the story is that these are the remains of group of young women who were turned to stone for dancing on the Sabbath. So this is where we're going to meet our witches. We are, yes. This is, we're going to meet Cassandra Latham-Jones and her partner Letitia Latham-Jones. Wise women. So in my head, a witch is, in my head, the popular image is pointy hats and broomsticks and, and all of that malarkey. Well, um, we're village wise women, um, which is a more acceptable phrase in our book. Not that we're adverse to be calling witches, but it tends to conjure up all sorts of images that can confuse certain people. So what is it that you do as wise women in the community? Well, basically, um, our function is to be problem solvers for people. People come to us who have tried all sorts of other things to um, figure out their problems. And the problems are basically the same as they have been for hundreds of years. People are interested in their relationships, their careers or jobs, their health. Uh, financial. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, illnesses, things like that. You know, yeah. Problems like spirit and attachments. very specific ones like... Mm, is just starting to allude to which is breaking curses and sorted out haunted houses and that sort of is that what do you do is it a, a talking thing or how, how does it work well we start off by obviously if they've got a certain situation 
um, they tell you some of it but we want to sort of look in depth to what's going on so we normally start off with a tarot reading and see what the cards bring up you know what they point us to and then if we need to go on to help them any further like maybe with a spell or a charm or something like that then we do, we will do that so how does that work here well with a charm i get them to send me contact items which will be a piece of their hair a recent photograph we need to know their date of birth because we look at planetary activity okay. and special times to do things, you yeah. know, where it's right for them. I will construct a charm and I normally do it in a, a felt pouch and put, put everything in it. And then we will decide a date and a time to actually magically energise the charm. And we will give them instructions to link in with us at that time. And then once that is done, I will post it to them with instructions on how they treat the charm, what they do with it and everything. So, um, the, What does the charm do once you've sent it to them? What's the purpose of it? Well, like a love charm, because yeah. we don't do spells to make somebody come back to them if they want their exes back and everything. So we say to them, we will do a charm to draw love to you and then the right person will find you and if it happens to be that person, they'll come back. But if it's someone else, it will work differently. So that would be what a love charm would be for. And do you believe that the charm, once you've activated it, has a sort of an energy of its own then? It does, and it also affects their confidence because if they really believe in that charm, they will act in a different way. But it'd be interesting to talk to Tia because um, she's a natural psychic. And I've done spirit mediumship and deep trance as well, where you you attach with the spirit to, and take on their physical attributes, things like the, that. What's the spirit? Uh, a spirit of someone who's passed away. Oh, really? Right, but what does that feel like for you when you connect with someone who's passed? It was so gentle, was it? and even when they left, it they just slipped out so slowly as what they'd come, and it was a wonderful feeling. And when they come, so is it the voices that you hear? I mean, for is someone reason. who has a message for someone, or is it just a connection? It's, it's like when we go to properties that people have had problems in with spirits then we go in then I I pick up on which ones are there and then the circumstances um, we went to a very old public house and I picked up on eight spirits in this because no one was going in there anymore because of its reputation and that and there was very strong presence the spirit of a young girl as well that was soaking wet and she drowned and she hadn't crossed over because she didn't get on with her parents and she wasn't sure whether to go or not. And later on I found out there was history of someone drowning, in the, a young girl drowning in the river next to the pub. something that happened to me when I was very young, which was that my brother died uh, in an accident when I was very young, about three years old I was. And for many years after, um, obviously within the household, there's a lot of grief and a lot of loss with my parents and all the rest of it. But I saw faces 
by day and sometimes by night that would come almost like rushing past me sometimes and some would stop and then rush past again very frightened of it all and over time they left and I've always put that down to a sort of psychological trauma I don't know what it was I saw or what I was experiencing whether it was something from me that I was conjuring up or something from outside me that the trauma opened up if you know what I mean young children are very open to the spirit world mm. right when they're small yeah. and Many of because you'd had that frightening experience, and anything else that happened would have scared you. Um, maybe if that hadn't have happened to you, and you didn't have someone die, yeah. then when that happened, you may have been more curious about it rather than scared. So, so when we when we pass away, when we die, what happens to our energy? Do you think? Yeah. I do believe it's about learning lessons. Yes. And I also believe that you can't learn all lessons you need to from one life. No. You okay. need to be men, women, rich, poor. So we live different, different lives, in your opinion. It's, yeah. It makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. That, that's Tia's point of view. Mine is a little bit simpler than that. I think I will just go back to the elements. But what I think lives on is other yeah. people's memory of you. Mm. But because I'm, I, I then become part of the ancestors. Mm. So an ancestral memory people honour their ancestors and I think it's a good practice to do. So We've had our conversation with the, the witches, the wise women. I mean, from your point of view, has it been helpful? <laughs> well, oh, they're amazing. I, I love these women. They're fantastic. And, oh, yeah, learnt loads and loved their company. And, I don't know, maybe. I got the impression, you know, I mean, you raised your brother with them story of your brother I got the impression that you were hoping that they may be able to provide you with some sort of way forward or solution or yeah. something yeah well you always get that sort of sense that you can always think well I'm talking to somebody who might be able to give me a kind of proof that would satisfy me you know or would would reach into something that I can't otherwise do on my own and yeah, I mean, there's nothing specific, you know. I, I need to talk to maybe I need to talk to somebody else, you know. And keep talking to people. Have you thought about talking to your mother about this? God, we never, we've never talked to mum about this stuff. It's always been like taboo. It's you never. It's always been no, don't do it because you'll upset her. You know, don't take her to somewhere that's gonna be painful so no I've thought, thought about it but no I've never done it maybe you think I should do it I tell you what I think you can drop me off um, oh, and um, I'm what I'll do is you know you can keep your options open I'll leave the, uh, the recorder here okay um, thanks I'll uh, well yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, tell okay. me tell me what you 
decide how it goes. Hang on, just let me switch off the engine a minute. Okay, uh, wh where are you? Uh, I'm sitting in the... Oh, God, I've just pulled up outside my mum's. Ah, uh, right. Okay, so... You... I was thinking about maybe... I mean, it's been years and we've never had a conversation about what we should have thought about a long time ago. And I'm thinking maybe now, you know, that's what I should do for the podcast. Is it fair to make her part of this podcast some people might see that as a bit exploitative yeah it is a bit exploitative that's the thing that's what I'm thinking you know but the, the thing is that what's happened is that the story as it's emerged for us there's two women at the heart of it we've got you know there's Carl Cox of course and and there's my mum you know and so far both those stories have been told through in a way told through men you know we're interested in Alistair Crowley and I mean in terms of you know the, the poor woman in the in in the in the in the cottage we can't even remember her name no it's not even recorded it doesn't seem to be recorded anyway certainly not in the Newman book and I feel like it's a bit like when I used to write silent witness episodes and and we'd sort of focus in on the killer who was often a man and the victim was often a woman you know and it seems like what we've got here is we've got a We've got a victim. We've got we've got Carl Cox who's a victim, and we've not really focused on her at all. That is a good point, and I have actually been doing a bit of digging wow. into Carl Cox. Um, Great mind. Yeah, I did involve going to the library and stuff. <laughs> well, okay, you tell me. Um, I mean, you kind of described her as a local woman. What do you know about her? Nothing. I think in my head she's like lovely local Cornish woman. You know pastry-handed sort of is interested in other people and caring and kind and a, a, a Cornish woman from, from Zena. Yeah, so if I told you that she was a Cambridge University graduate, she had an affair with the poet Rupert Brooke. Oh, God. She was a good friend of Virginia Woolf, what? the writer. She had a son called Mark. Her husband was Will Arnold Forster, the Labour politician. I mean, I could go on. OK, and I'm really surprised. And now I feel a bit ashamed. Because I've made assumptions as bad as this woman is. So, I mean, I'm going to say it again, but don't you think that here's something else, is something else that adds into that sense of a cover-up? You know, not only do we know very little about this woman, not only the events in the cottage seem to have been covered up the police report isn't available nothing is available about what happened at all did they even investigate it in any depth now you know hey she was a prominent woman well listen I mean obviously there's more for us to find out but I mean okay I'm just you, you're outside your mum's I mean I'm going to leave it up to you what you're going to do now um, do you think I should go in? What, what do I think I, I mean I think the decision's up to you I mean you know alright leave it with me
Hey, all right, Hi, my love. Yeah, all right. Yeah, nice to see you. All right, Matilda, how are you? <coughs> Fine, I'm all right. Good. We've reached the end of episode three, where we've dipped our toes in the magical, mystical and supernatural. And perhaps not surprisingly, there are now more questions about the story we're investigating. Despite what the ghost hunters say, how is it there's so little evidence that Alistair Crowley rented or even lived in that cottage? How could someone so infamous have passed unnoticed in a remote part of Cornwall at that time? Books have been written about this man, but does the cottage ever get a mention? Can you help us with this particular question? And the electrical equipment the paranormal investigators use. Can this in any way prove that it's possible to contact the dead or record supernatural phenomena? This is where you can help us. We'd love to hear your theories or thoughts, so do let me and Graham know. You can find us on social media with a hashtag OneDarkNight or you can email us OneDarkPodcast at gmail.com Next time, a revelation. The remarkable life of Carl Cox. And another mystery, her disappearance. Do join us then. Mm -hmm.